0: Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Robert Fry with
1: Garrett Boyum. And today we have an awesome podcast for you guys. We ended up recording this one about a month ago and I've been super busy with school, but I'm really excited to finally get to share with you guys this episode. We had a really great conversation and I wanted to give you guys a little bit of context before we dive in and where we discussed two articles One of of which was written by myself, um, which was titled, What is the Highest Form of Technique? Which was based off of a quote by Bruce Lee, uh, where he said, the highest technique is to have no technique. My technique is the result of your technique. My movement is the result of your movement. And so in it, I kind of explore more of the ideas behind his quote and how his quote fits very well with motor learning ideas such as ecological dynamics. And so we kind of explore that more in a general uh, sports sense. I, I wrote it for all sports, not just baseball. And so that's why we wanted to talk about it today, or I wanted to talk about it today with Robert and the other article that our conversation centered around was the physics of batting practice. Yeah. So
0: The physics of batting practice article was written by David Kagan and and big fan of his work. He is the one that came up with the physics of pitch effects behind basically measuring from ball release to plate and basically creating those 3D pitch plots that you may see on Baseball Savant or Brooks Baseball even where it shows you from ball release all the way to hand and it allowed me to create kind of those 3d pitch visualizations I've done with flight scope data. So also lastly, there may or may not be a SpongeBob reference for you. So stay tuned for that. And I can't wait for you all to listen to this podcast.
1: speaking. Well, do I want to do updates on how things have been going at um at Quincy and I can give a little update on what we've been doing here at MSU. Yeah, and uh, let's
0: uh let's hear MSU first. I feel like I always start the ball, so we're going to
1: we're going to throw you a Fair change enough.
0: up this time.
1: Fair enough. Um I mean, we've we've just been in individual work for the past couple of weeks. Um since the start of school, um, we've gotten to hit outside a little bit more this week, which was really nice. Uh, I really liked some of the stuff we were doing and having some external targets um, or external focus of attention um, work. And having guys, for example, um, do like a, sa- a sack fly round where we had some buckets out in the outfield and being you know, like, "Hey, hit a fly ball." Um, either to the bucket or beyond the bucket. So um, basically, as our hitting coach would say, um, sack fly or um, extended. Um, So I really like that. Um, I thought guys really like that. It's always great when you're able to get out on the field and hit um, to see ball flight and see where things are going. And then we also had our outfield group um, shagging some fly balls for one of the other hitting groups um, so that they could get some live reads. So yeah, that's kind of what we've been doing there. Um, How about yourself, Robert?
0: Yeah, that actually sounds really cool. Um, I'd be interested to see kind of, kind of that stuff and, put some good old data analysis on that. But, yeah, we, uh, we've we been fortunate to be outside for hitting for most of the time. Um, last week was a rough week because there was a lot of rain here. So I think we had three straight days of being indoors. And, uh, yeah, that kind of limits our, our training uh, in some way. So, like you, you know, we had – like you, not – Using the sack fly buckets per se, but we had a target in mind, and I show you a photo of it. But essentially, we have like three, um, three plates, three kind of like modified turtles um, on our field, and hmm. each mm-hmm. pitching machine is its own um, unique characteristic. So one of them is a right-handed breaking ball, one of them's a left-handed breaking ball, and the center one's kind of like a high spin fastball. And, uh, each one we have like a certain plan to it and it, it would vary by day. Um, and sometimes we might do a kind of like a switcheroo round where we'll just say, all right, time to switch it up. And we'll say, all right, this, this part of the cage does this, this part does this, this part does this. Um, and we kind of go through something like situational hitting or, um, just focus having a, you know, different, different type of focus to our training. Um, and then, yeah, same thing as you guys, individual work. Um, it's, it's really good because we're getting a, we're getting a ton of video in and I mean, it's, it's great because, you know, the the biggest, the biggest thing for feedback for, our guys especially is being able to see themselves on video and understanding okay here's what I'm doing with with my swing and thankfully we have you know we have guys that are very uh, receptive to that and they they want to be able to say okay you know based on this video this is what I'm doing and are and are willing to make adjustments on their own without you know a great amount of coaching mm
1: mm-hmm. mhm Yeah, one of the other things that we've been doing too is mixing in uh, the Stroman drill or Quato. Um, And that's something that I've really liked um, to help guys become more adjustable with their timing and just to give guys different looks and to make things a little bit more challenging. And I think that segues nicely into... Some of the articles um, that we wanted to talk about, um, one being an old one that I believe um, one of the driveline hitting trainers posted on the physics of batting practice um, and kind of how they were talking about implementing more pitching machines into practice. Um, Do you kind of? want to touch on some of the things that you kind of pulled out of that article?
0: Yeah. So it definitely allowed me. So since, you know, we at Quincy use blast motion, we can, you know, we get metrics like bat speed. So from a kind of like a analytical perspective, it allows me to, from that article, it allows me to kind of think creatively in terms of, okay, from this pitching machine that we have set at this with the bat speed set at this, you know what's what's that exit velocity on you know said batted ball or mm-hmm. um you know we could also do kind of like what's that what's that time in the hitting zone as mentioned in the article too from those uh numbers that we do have so i think that 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 was the biggest thing that i gleaned from it was being able to possibly calculate those metrics um because yeah the the radar system that we do use it would obviously wouldn't do very well when there's you know three balls being hit almost simultaneously, so mm-hmm. we have to you know get creative with kind of getting metrics and obtaining those.
1: Yeah, I know that was some of the stuff that was covered in the physics of batting practice. They were talking about how, um, if you take bat speed, somebody having the bat speed of 75 miles per hour, um, and the pitch speed was, say, for example, 60 miles an hour, that could lead to an exit velocity of 102. And then if the pitching machine is ramped up at 90, that could lead to an exit velo of 108. Um, And then they were talking about, well, how much time is there from ball release to home? And traditional BP is going to be about 0.45 seconds, whereas a pitching machine at 55 feet would be 0.42 seconds. And I believe that's still if the pitching machine was throwing 90. Um, And then the traditional BP was at 40 feet, throwing 60 miles an hour. And then to what you were mentioning, Robert, about um, time in the hitting zone, traditional BP was 0.019 seconds, whereas the pitching machine was 0.13 seconds. Um, And I thought it was interesting about how, okay, yes, the pitching machine is going to be more difficult um, because there's going to be less time in the hitting zone, um, also less time to home. But I think the other thing that makes it more difficult is that there's no pre-pitch information. So from a timing standpoint, it becomes um maybe a little bit harder to time or there's um a little bit less variability in terms of how you can vary your timing mechanism. And I think that's why when you look at the research on, say for example, cricket's bats batsmen, um hitting off of a pitching machine versus a live batter. I think they also recreated this in a Japanese study. Hitters tend to have smaller moves that are different than when they had actually hit off of a real pitcher. So um, I think that might account for why the increased difficulty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the other thing that popped in my
0: head was, you know, when an object is in motion, it stays in motion. So obviously with a BP or a live pitcher, like, you know, their arm is in motion, they're they're throwing a baseball. Whereas you're using the pitching machine, you flash the ball, your arm slows down, may even stop, and then you feed the machine. And still there's that time where, you know, technically there may be that small amount of time where nothing may be in motion. So yeah, it's it's a big thing for timing in terms of that because, again, when we as baseball players want to, you know, understand timing or swing a baseball bat, it's more or less based off the motion of the pitcher. Whereas, you know, in pitch, with a pitching machine, you may not get a full object in motion sequence.
1: Yeah, I and the other thing, too, that I think that we talked a little bit about with Kyle Lindley was the gaze behavior isn't similar either. Um, And I know that Kyle has talked about this on Twitter as well. The fact that the eyes will start on the body and then they'll make a saccade or they'll shift from the body to release point. Whereas if we're just using a pitching machine, there is no incentive for, a hitter to shift their eyes from one spot to another to pick up the ball. Um, They're just going to park their gaze right on the pitching machine uh, where the ball comes out. And I think that's where if, if it's about having an athlete trying to connect to the information within the problem and them being able to pick up on like what that information tells them about how the ball is going to move. Um, So for example, today we were using our spin ball machine and it was really erratic. And one of the players made a comment about like just how uncomfortable and hard it was and just how it's just different from a, like a game setting. And I think kind of what he was getting at too is that, you know, unintentionally, was the fact that when you're actually facing a live pitcher, you kind of get a little bit of information as far as did he yank that ball, you know, and have a little bit of a heads up that the ball might actually run in on you, um, because the ball out of the spinball machine was on both sides of the plate, um, and it wasn't really consistent. Um, but we'll get into how that. In my opinion, I I thought that was a more realistic look, but. Given that it's a pitching machine and the hand just goes up and it puts it down, there's no other information to give you any small indication of, hey, this ball might be going inside or this ball might be going um, outside, up or down. And so I think that's one of the other limitations of using a pitching machine is that the athlete doesn't become better at picking up that pre-pitch movement and how it how it can affect the pitch flight and the pitch location.
0: Yeah. And another thing that we also use, so with our pitching machines, we we have timing shoots and what essentially they are is basically like this elongated pipe where you'll feed the ball into this pipe and it kind of rolls. So the reason why that we use that is again, it it kind of simulates a ball, a ball in motion, or in this case, a pitcher in motion. So that's a big thing that that we used to kind of simulate that because again like it's hard to say hey don't use a pitching machine because of you know the the benefits of it to a coaching staff to you know players like to get reps now but again as you mentioned you know connecting to the information are we really getting the proper reps that we should be getting is what we should be asking in this scenario
1: Right. And that's that's one of the things too, when I was reading this article, a previous one came to mind um, that was written in the New York Times um, last year. And it was really interesting, the last line of the article, because it was talking about the, the article name was um, a novel idea in the majors, how Um, using batting practice to get better. And part of what they talked about was using pitching machines. But the last line of the article, I think, is the best from Yankees outfielder uh, Mike uh, Talkman. You're going to have to correct me, Robert, on this. It's it's Talkman. Okay. Yankees outfielder Mike Tauchman. And um, to kind of quote this a little bit, he he used to pinch hit quite a bit and he really wanted to make sure that his eyes were ready for game speed and and he would he would use the pitching machine and crank it up and and use that to try to get his eyes used to that. And I think there's some benefit to that for sure. Um you know. But he said there's really no substitute for a human standing six feet or sorry. There's really no substitute for a human standing 60 feet, 6 inches away and throwing as hard as they can at you. Um and and I think he's right on that. Like a pitching machine can't simulate the the emotion that another person has. And I think this ties into um an article that I put together for Emergence and the Bruce Lee quote that um I kind of centered the article around which was um the highest technique is to have no technique. My technique is the result of your technique. My movement is a result of your movement. And when we're talking about um what talkman, if I pronounce that right, Talkman was saying, is there's no substitute for a human trying to throw as hard as they can from 60 feet, six inches away. I mean you know, you hear all these pitchers like grunting and all this sort of stuff. And there's like emotion, you know, like we, you know, you're facing Max Scherzer, you know, the amount of emotion that's coming from him, like that's going to shape your movement response. I mean, we can see how hitting off a pitching machine and the anxiety that creates in our players is going to shape how they move. Similarly, a person's emotion and their intent and being able to read that intent is going to shape how an athlete is going to move. And we want, in my mind, you want to also um, have athletes be able to interact with that and learn how to coordinate their movement in response to that.
0: Yes. And so the way I kind of look at it is you kind of think, think to yourself this way. So in terms of, you know, as you mentioned, Bruce Lee with the great quote of, you know, the best technique is to have no technique. Mm -hmm. I feel like we should be able to stress this not only to, you know, people in baseball, but just life in general, where, you know, you can't really, we in the baseball world, and you mentioned this in your article, we, we are so kind of focused in on mastering you know, this mastery of we gotta have the perfect mechanics, we gotta have this, you know, the the perfect swing with the perfect mechanics. But we have to understand that really that there is not a perfect way of doing things. The more now the more reps you do of something, it helps, but that shouldn't mean, okay, I'm working to perfection. We have this perfect thing. It's just I'm getting better at
1: not being as terrible is kind of the way I'm putting it. Well, I think we also want to think of it in terms of each time we approach a problem, we're, we're in a different state of being, right? So because we're a complex adaptive system um, and we're dynamic and our system is very dynamic, every time we approach a problem, um, we're going to be in a slightly different state. And so therefore, it the way that we're going to go about solving that problem isn't going to necessarily be the same, and there might be some slight deviation in the problem. and so really, it's more about, are we getting better at solving problems? And I think, too, sometimes we can actually do things perfectly. like when we think about some of the amazing feats of athleticism that we've seen. Athletes perform during competition. Those are like perfectly executed um plays. And basically, the way that I see it now from a ecological perspective is everything came together in that moment for them to execute, and like things just kind of fell into place. I know Brian Pazos talked about this a little bit in terms of you know when he would play you know, getting his eyes underneath the ball when he was fielding a grounder and then picking up the eyes of the first baseman. And it just seemed like the ball would just naturally be online and end up right there. And for me, I have the example of there were times where if I got when I would get it would get feeds at second base to turn a double play, it's almost just like the ball in my body just put itself in the right position to to make that play. And so In a way, when you become attuned to the information in the problem and your body begins to couple itself to to that information, it essentially puts itself in the right position to execute the play and you can actually achieve that perfection, so to speak, for a moment. But it becomes the question of, how do you repeat that? And it's not so much about burning it into muscle memory as it is about, to use a quote from Nikolai Bernstein, it becomes about the process of solving the problem again and again.
0: Correct. Yeah. And that's that's essentially what I was working towards alluding to was, you know, you get better at problem solving. doesn't mean you mm-hmm. are you know, the best at it, but if you are challenged with that problem, you know, you're in a better scenario than say the previous time you faced that similar problem.
1: Um Yeah. There are some times where you're gonna just absolutely nail it and other times it's just gonna be good enough. You know, and that's all right.
0: Exactly. So there's there's this there's this threshold again, like as as you kind of mentioned, like we're, we're so obsessed with having these great mechanics, but sometimes, you know, certain, certain movements may work in that scenario. Certain movements may not work in various scenarios. Um, it's all about kind of determining, okay, well, you know, what, what information do I have right now and how can I best proceed with the information that is presented to me?
1: Right. Like, how can I find a way to get it done? Um, You know, a lot of pitching coaches and pitchers have talked about how do you, how do you pitch on days where you don't have the best stuff, right? Where your body just isn't highly attuned and calibrated, kind of like we talked about last week. And it happens to be slightly uncalibrated and a little unattuned. How do you, how do you take it take your body when your your intrinsic dynamics are not at their peak level um, and still find a way to get your body reattuned and calibrated to something that doesn't feel supernatural to you and still find a way to solve that problem. And that's that's where I think when we lean too heavily on Executing perfect mechanics. And I know we talked about this last week when we were talking about um Keith David's talk um about the swimmers, or the divers rather, and them hitting the diving board. You know, if if we focus too heavily on perfect technique, we may hamstring guys um ability to solve problems. Because um Simon Sinek gave this great uh, TED talk um, and use this example of if you have a goal from if you're given the goal of having to get from one side of the room to the other, and if you just tell somebody, Hey, I just want you to get from one side of the room to the other, no problem, but if you put the constraint on them of well, you have to do it perfect, meaning in this case you have to walk a straight line. well, if you start walking and then someone slides an object in front of you, what are you going to do you're going to stop because You're not really sure how to solve that problem because you've been commanded, you have to go in a straight line. But Simon Sinek goes on to say, but if I just told you you had to go from point A to point B, I slide a chair in front of you or something like that, you're just going to go around it, no big deal. And so to me, that's analogous to putting the constraint of you have to be perfect and your technique has to be perfect. Um, It just over-constrains the system and it doesn't, it actually trains out of them their ability to problem solve.
0: Right. And so this is a perfect lead into my good old scenario that we're presenting here is Hmm. from the great show, SpongeBob SquarePants. Can't believe I'm talking about SpongeBob on a podcast, but here we go. Uh, It's the episode where, SpongeBob and Patrick blow bubbles and they give Uh lessons. Okay. Squidward tries to blow bubbles. He can't, so he gets lessons Mm -hmm. from SpongeBob. And SpongeBob gives him this whole hullabaloo of information, and he's like, You have to use the technique. And so the technique goes as follows spin around twice, stop, double take three times one, two, three, and then it goes to like a pelvic thrust and then a bunch of random movements and then you blow a perfect bubble. But again, this Mm -hmm. is kind of, you know, putting in that process where it's so much focused on you have to have these perfect movements, these specific set of movements to create this perfect technique to blow that bubble. Whereas the one time Squidward did blow a bubble, all he did was just scream into the bubble blower and it blew a bubble. Right. The moral of the story of this is you don't necessarily need to have the perfect technique to do the job.
1: And your technique is not necessarily going to be the same as somebody else's technique. Correct. Because
0: bodies are different for everybody.
1: And, too, because our bodies change like day to day, our technique could be slightly different. And we need to, I think, we need to train athletes to figure out how to work around some of their limitations. I mean, that's the best athletes are the, are the ones that, you know, when, you know, they get dinged up a little bit, they're still able to go out and perform at a high level. Um, I mean, it's said quite often, the best athletes are the best compensators. And that's not to say that we don't want to help athletes be more efficient and learn how to be more efficient with their moves and to move in ways that are going to be less um, injury-prone. But it does mean that if we do train the tissues and the body to be able to express both strength, stability, mobility, um, and speed and power in various positions, we should allow the body to be able to not always have to put load through the same tissues and joints all the time in the same way and i i actually think that that makes a more robust athlete and so that's why for me i i look at as an athlete that has more movement options is an athlete that is also less injury prone so I think that's where I know some coaches, the whole reason that they're really, it's really important to them that guys really strive to do things the most biomechanically optimal way is because in their mind, it's all about health. And I get that. And I think there's, there's some credence to that, but I also think that athletes should not only train that, but should also train to be able to work on the edges of that as well and to be strong there and to be capable there so that when they find themselves in that position in a the game, they also, their body is prepared and ready to handle that.
0: Correct. And that brings me to an example that I've felt with in the past um, that I played with a guy who was a Purdue commit as a pitcher. He was, you know, low, low 80s, high, or low, high 80s, low 90s, um, his senior year. But he, he was so overcoached that he, there, the focus was, okay, you're only going to pitch every five days, et cetera. You have to, you know, and every pitch he threw on, you know, side days, it was very, um, very examined, in the sense that, you know, if he doesn't, if he didn't do this specific movement, then you, you have to do that pitch again to get that specific movement. And like you mentioned, being more uh, flexible in movement types allows for less injury. Well, guess what? This this guy, the same guy, had a lot of injury proneness to him. Um, he had arm problems, he had leg problems and, you know, it was, it was a tough situation, but thankfully he was able to make it as a, a, as a bat. But again, it just leads to this scenario of like, you don't have to have one way of solving that problem. And we, uh, of course, we talked about it last week where it's, you know, where we were talking about, okay, how many ways can you get the answer five of
1: two plus three mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, of four plus one, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think what other things that we want, might want to talk to or talk about on this. I think, Oh, the other thing that came up in the New York times article, that I thought was really good. And this harkens back to our conversation with um, Rob Gray was um, Jeff Alberts in the New York times article talks about how, you know, if we are succeeding, you know, in batting practice, like if we hit every single ball, you know, how, how game-like is that? Like how many times, in a game, do we actually hit every ball um, that we swing at? Um, you know, and then also too, like how many strikes do we see in a game um, versus how many strikes do we um, throw in batting practice? And, you know, usually coaches are, um, and players too, are really annoyed when the coach isn't throwing all cookies to them in in practice, but when you actually think about it, and the article mentions, a pitcher is usually fifty to sixty percent strikes in a game. So you know one of the things that is big today is um, decision making. Well, in some regards, you know how often are players actually really having to um, have to perceive where the ball is. Um, relative to their ability to hit it and ball and strike. And so that's where, you know, I get it when it comes to a machine standpoint that it can pump more strikes and be more consistent. But is that really what we actually want to expose our hitters to? Um, You know, if we want to make it more game-like, then maybe we need to have a more realistic ball strike percentage in practice.
0: Yeah, and so do we really want those guys that are up there throwing darts in the strike zone, or do we want someone who is I don't want to say erratic, but at least understands not every pitch that I should throw should be a strike.
1: Well, and and two, I I pulled this from I believe the Sport Cortex um, book. I might have. Gotten the words backwards on that, but you know, when it comes to coordinating your movement and being more accurate, you're more accurate when you get when you're allowed to move and have things flow from one thing to the next. So, essentially, this is why I believe that for the most part, hitters should have a little bit more movement and flow to their swing um, instead of having like everything be like really short and quick. Um, is it doesn't allow for guys to have more rhythm and timing in their swing, and it's harder for them to coordinate their uh, different degrees of freedom because, you know, like you were talking about before, Robert, of like, um, an object in motion likes to stay in motion, and an object at rest likes to stay at rest. I mean, that's that's kind of the same principle that's that's going on here. Um, and so, yeah, this comes out of the performance cortex book and. I think when we allow hitters to, you know, for just grooving fastball after fastball in the strike zone, you know, or right down the middle, guys just get in a rhythm and it's just really easy for them. But it doesn't work like that in the game. Like you don't get to, you know, take five swings in a row on fastballs down the middle. I mean, very rarely um, you might get two in a row. But five in a row, um, you know, with without any context of account. I mean, that's that's where I think having, for me, I think it is more beneficial to have a live arm, and to be okay with a live arm trying to hit spots and missing spots every now and then, um, and creating a scenario where a hitter has to deal with broken rhythm. A little bit and having to learn how to essentially, you know, deal with that sort of pressure and to be able to be calm and to collect themselves and to focus and to be ready to hit that pitch. I mean, because that's what we want to see: is our guys to be ready for the fastball. For example, you know, why is it that guys on the first pitch end up taking the best pitch of the at bat? It's because they they're not trained to come in and square a ball up on the first swing They're They've been training. If you're just grooving it all the time to, you know, get, get things synced up on pitch three or four or five of your BP round. And so that's why to me, I think it's super, I think coaches should be more okay with their BP throwers, quote unquote, uh, actually being a little bit more around the zone and not always being in the zone.
0: Right. And so that, that leads into the precision versus accuracy argument. Do you want to be precise or do you want to be accurate? And in this case, you more or less want to be accurate. Um, You don't want to dart the same spot at the same time. We're not, this is not a game of darts where you throw the dart at the same spot. And throw it hit the bullseye. Um so I think it's better in this scenario to be accurate because again you're not in the game like environment. You're not gonna get the same pitch in the same spot multiple times in a single at bat, maybe even in in a game as well. Um so I think it's it's better to have those BB throwers move around the zone a bit and even out of the zone. And it shouldn't be a scenario of, you know, the hitters being flustered because the BP thrower is out of the zone where, Oh, I can't hit that. Well, that's good. You shouldn't hit that because it is out
1: of the zone. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that, um, the New York times article on batting practice, um, kind of talks about in terms of I think what Jeff Alberts was trying to get his players to understand is that, you know, practice should be more challenging. And I think a lot of kids, because of this idea of perfect practice makes permanent, you know, we're perfect. And this chasing the ideal of the more we execute it right in practice under. Um, And in some ways, making it easier for them to do that leads to it showing up more on game time. And more often than not, we don't see that occurring. And really, it becomes more about the kids' egos feeling good than it does about trying to teach the athlete to be a competitor. I think coaches love athletes that are hungry for a challenge and are competitors, But the question is, is does our practice environment actually foster that type of athlete? Like, are we bringing up athletes um, in an environment that um, encourages that type of behavior? Um, Or does it more reinforce that the environment needs to be perfect and I need to have lots of success in order to feel good about myself um, rather than trying to challenge yourself. And I know we, when we were talking with um, Rob Gray, we, we, I made the mention of like, if you think about skateboarders, they may, they fail all the time in trying to learn new tricks. And why wouldn't, why shouldn't our hitters have that same mentality of wanting to hit more difficult pitches and trying to solve different problems with their bat, um, and seeing things more as a challenge uh, when it comes to hitting, like I think if we can f- create an environment that fosters that mindset and that mentality, I think that, for me personally, that that's the ideal environment, and those are the type of players you want. And I also think that that falls back on us as coaches as to whether or not we have been creating environments that foster that type of mentality.
0: Correct. And so this brings up to a point that Caleb Abney has made in the past where, you know, we want to have kind of that variability training in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, just being around the zone, being in different parts of the zone um, for BP. So that allows then each individual player to better understand a, how to solve more problems and B maybe there's, maybe there's a spot outside of the strike zone where their body just moves really well. And, you know, it has a good connection to the information with a certain pitch type, but In a given, you know, training environment where you're just getting either machines or BP in the same spot, you wouldn't know that unless you use that variability training.
1: Right. And that's where I think from a game setting standpoint and collecting data, you know, maybe having a. A player or a coach sitting in the stands charting uh, at a ball location might. Help reveal that a little bit more because I think it's really hard in the cage to tell whether or not that would have been a successful at bat. Like some home runs and doubles are balls that are hit off the top of the cage, like relatively early in the cage, so relatively close to the hitter. Um, but to kind of jump back to what I was saying earlier about, um, creating and fostering an environment that has more of a competitive mindset or challenge acceptance mindset. I think that's how we help athletes better deal with failure. Um, We have to, I think, in order to create training environments that where they're going to fail more, we also have to prepare them for that because I think currently the the environments that athletes are most used to right now are ones where they are expected to succeed a lot, right? Like coaches talk about and preach consistency. Um, And I think that's where the pressure for them to be more consistent means that they are apprehensive about failing and so if we want guys to view hard things as challenging then we have to help them understand the value of failure and that's part of learning and shifting their view on how they they view that experience
0: correct and so that that leads me to a uh, to a thing that i use it's not for not hitting but um one day in practice i was running a reaction drill for third baseman and for those that don't know essentially the third baseman has his face he turns backwards and has his face towards the outfield and when I say go he turns around and you know just figures out where the ball's at and he goes to get it but mm-hmm. what I did for this scenario was in the past they were you know I asked him hey you know how how does this work you just say ready go you feed the ball to the machine and uh it to them. but then I added variability by either doing a quick ready go or ready long pause go, ready go, you know all these different types, and they were like, this was challenging, but it was so much fun. They're like, this mm-hmm. is a super fun thing, and like they were they were struggling with some ground balls, but they were like honestly like. That's that's how it should go because, again, you're not going to – when we talk about – the fact, you're not going to get a great read on every batted ball uh, Mm -hmm. on the defensive side. So why not mess with timing in this sense of fielding a ground ball that helps them in the future? Because, again, you're not going to be completely attuned to the information defensively either. You're not going to be – you know, your body's not going to move the same every day you step out on the field and feel the ground ball. So being able to have a variable amount of information or a variable training environment allows that adaptability to say, okay, well, now I can solve more
1: problems. Right. And I think that You know, our goal is to help athletes become to more become more attuned to the information and to become more sensitive to the relevant information in the environment. And so that's why I think it's super important to try to provide as much game like information within the problem that they're needing to solve um, so that they can become more or so that they can become better able or better at picking up that information. and better at being able to utilize that information uh, given any state that their system is currently in. You know, the example that you're using, though, about guys having fun, and we've talked about this many times on the podcast before, is if you're creating competition and creating an athlete that um, has a mindset of wanting a challenge, you know, the example that you gave of, you know, got you giving them a challenging drill and guys actually liking it, you know, like they're wanting to get back in there and hey, give me another one, you know, like they're having fun. And, and because the season is can be quite long and a bit of a grind, it needs to, there needs to be fun. Like you want, we want to keep guys' passion for the game strong. And by having, having their mindset change and shift to, more of a competitive, um, challenger type of a mindset. I think just keeps it keeps it more interesting, and it actually helps them grow way more in terms of skill acquisition.
0: Right, and yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that up too in terms of, you know, wanting to take another because yeah, for each time these guys, you know, miss a ground ball or maybe misread a ground ball, they're like, please give me another, I want another. Um, And so obviously for that second time around, I would give them a different read. So instead of, you know, let's say the first time I was just like ready, pause for one second, go. I would say ready, pause for four seconds, go. Um, And you know, uh, based on the drill, as soon as I say, go, they turn around. And so the ball could be, you know, a hundred feet away. The ball could be 50 feet away. The ball could be 30 feet away when they turn around. So it's, it's a good environment to allow these guys to one get better to understand that there are a lot of different quote unquote scenarios to say a problem. And three, that you don't have to solve that problem the same way with another problem or you don't have to solve that
1: same individual problem one way. Totally. Were you bouncing something in the background? I was not. Oh, cuz there was like thumping.
0: It might have been me. While you were. Might have been me rocking my chair.
1: Oh okay, because you were you were spitting fire, and then there is was, there was like bumping in the background.
0: Yeah, that might have been me hitting the chair to the wall.
1: Fair enough. <laughs> um, well, do you, if you want to give it another go on that one, we can uh, we can try to edit that back in. <laughs> um, I otherwise, mean,
0: I mean, I can try to give it another go, but. I don't think it'll be the same as what I just said. Of course.
1: Yeah, no, I mean the right. And that's like context, you know, is I'll try not to be as excited about it. (laughs) No, I mean, but that's the thing, right? Passion is awesome. Like, you know, anyways. So to kind of wrap up here, um, again, like I, I think the takeaway here is that, um, we want guys to explore their movements to become problem solvers. Um, And so in practice, they should be exploring um, the landscape of the problem or surfing the bandwidth of the problem and discovering the edges of their ability and trying new things and that it's okay to fail. Like how, how many different ways can they solve this problem? Um, And you know, in a way about like trying to challenge themselves, um, in creating that, that sort of a mindset, I think would be a thing that I would want people to kind of walk away from this conversation with. How about yourself, Robert?
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. And being able to, I guess, understand that, you know, One, it's okay to fail, but also at the same time, fail better. I I can't remember Mm -hmm. who said that before, but fail better. And what I essentially mean by that is allow yourself to be like, okay, I'm failing, but I'm also learning while I'm doing it. Because in my personal experience, anytime I, you know, let's say when I'm writing code and it's incorrect, that helps me learn better. That obviously failure is in my case, a great learner or a great creator of a learning environment. It's a great teacher. Yeah, there we go. I could not think of the word teacher and I don't know why.
1: <laughs> no, nah, it happens. But yeah, totally. Like, And I think that's where we have to remind people that failure is part of the learning process. You know, since we're getting close to my son's bedtime, you know, Nobody gets mad when you know a little kid falls down trying to learn to walk. You know, it's learning. That is the process of learning. You know, ever since we're we little, um, we're we're gonna make mistakes. Or, you know, in the process of acquiring something new, um, and a new skill, we're you're gonna fail. And so, remembering that that's part of the process, and um, to use a Napoleon Hill um quote um you know the the seeds of success are 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 found in failure um so to speak i kind of butchered that quote but um yeah i mean that's that's what i think guys need to remember is that the seeds of their success are 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 from are found in moments of failure so you know anyways guys if you like this episode and want to reach out to us um, feel free to hit us up on social media, Twitter. Um, you can contact me at G B O Y U M zero one on Twitter and people can find Robert Fry where
0: on Twitter at Robert
1: Fry 40. And I'm not going to forget it this time. I have a YouTube uh-huh. channel as well. Yeah. So you guys should definitely hit up and follow Robert on YouTube as well. And um, if you want to see, any of the kind of the resources that we um, some of the resources that we've talked about here on the podcast. Um, We also have a discord server that has um, some talks and different articles in it as well. Um, You guys should definitely check that out as well. It's called the baseball coaches clubhouse. Um, Find it on discord. So appreciate you guys listening till next time i to